0: more than 80% of the loan to value right you always want to make sure that the individual or the entity has at least 20% equity in the property again because in a situation where if they're if they're defaulting and you need to sell the property you want to make sure depending on on where prices are that you can get your money out right <laughs>
1: Thank you so much for tuning into Journey with Christian D. Evans Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Christian D. Evans. And guys, this next guest is a real estate investor, an entrepreneur with a passion for commercial real estate and financing. Within three years, this man scaled a boutique real estate investment company for $1.5 million to $20 million assets under management and grew his own personal real estate portfolio. By 200%. So you think you should listen to this podcast? You bet your ass you should. Now, he's also passionate about helping people achieve their real estate goals to create passive income and freedom. He recently developed a course on private lending, which we're going to be unpacking a lot on the strategies, the tactics, which teaches people how to earn passive income by offering secured private mortgages to borrowers who need private financing. His prior experience spans a multitude of industries, including automotive, healthcare, and technology, with a focus on mergers and acquisitions and scaling organizations. Most notably, he played an integral part in the growth of Amenity Healthcare Incorporated, a consolidated of the independent pharmacies that was acquired by private equity firm Torquest Partners in September 2017.
0: Please welcome my next guest, the one and only Roy Bloomfield. How are you doing today, my man? Doing great, Christian. Thanks for, uh, thanks for inviting me. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Well man, I am looking forward to this conversation as well. And one of the things, you know, obviously one of the reasons why I want to have you on is we're gonna
1: be talking about lending financing and, and kind of those tactics and strategies and so forth, but you know, coming from one point five million dollar to twenty million dollars AUM in a very short period of time frame, uh that's very, very impressive. Uh let's talk let's kind of start with there. Uh, what Absolutely. got you in the real estate and obviously what helped with that massive growth?
0: Yeah, you know, to be honest, I I kind of actually just stumbled into into real estate. It was interesting. Um, You know, I I had experience in raising capital, private capital. And when you think about how to scale a real estate portfolio, it's obviously very financing driven. So uh, the boutique company that I joined at the time, um, they were very early on, you know, they only had about 1.5 million assets under management, only two buildings. And, um, you know, I guess they really kind of saw my experience in terms of financing and how that would apply to being able to scale our real estate portfolio. So um, I joined them in, in 2019 and it was interesting because not that long after we hit COVID. Right. And I think what was really interesting about that time is we actually ended up um, scaling our growth about three x throughout the pandemic. Um, whereas a lot of, you know, companies and institutions were, were scaling back. So, um, a lot of it as well was actually through private lending, which we can get into, but, um, uh, yeah, I came on board and I think it was just about finding the right deals, the right financial backers. And while a lot of people were, were pulling back at that time, we were really being more, more aggressive through the pandemic.
1: Why do you feel like you were being aggressive? Because like you mentioned at a macro site, we're even seeing this right now in other industries. A lot of people are sitting on the sidelines, just sitting on dry powder. So, and I love people like yourself that are aggressive while blood is in the streets, right? That whole concept. So what, what were some count, key, you know, performance indicators or metrics were you looking and relying on, even when you saw the macro uncertainty in the environment, be like, Hey, let's take advantage of it. Uh, what was that, that perspective or paradigm or that mindset? Where did that come from?
0: Yeah, you know, I think for us, it was, um, it was just about finding the right deals, the right opportunities, right? I mean, even though there was uncertainty in the economy, and, you know, people didn't know what was going to happen. And, and um, it was a risky time, I think really, for us, it was about identifying the right deal, the right opportunity. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, if if a building or a property is, is cash flowing, and you've got the occupancy, um, you know, even as interest rates rise, as long as, as long as you've got that occupancy and that cash flow, um, you know, and, and again, people were, were scaling back. There were a lot of deals to be had because people were looking to unload their properties. So we were, we were focused more on, on the actual deal rather than sort of what was going on in, in the macro economy. So I'd like to
1: dive into that before we dive into lender financing, when you're looking at the deal. Specifically, help us understand what industry were you? You said commercial, but in that in that commercial space, there's tons of different verticals within yeah. that commercial space. Dive into that and then also you and I know uh definitely in the office space commercial side, it took a hit and it's still taking a hit in regards to kind of acquisitions. Some people are, you know, selling that stuff pennies on the dollar because they just can't get rid of it because of just everybody's going on webinar and, and, and online and so forth and work from home. My point is, is what did you look at in regards to your KPIs, those deals that said, Okay, hey, this is aligned with our thesis. We know that obviously we're gonna be productive and, and 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 profitable. Um what what did that look like?
0: Yeah, so the thing for us at the time was the majority of our portfolio was was focused on multifamily, so uh, apartment units. And what's interesting is that um multifamily real estate remained the strongest asset class in real estate both through the 2008 crash and recently what happened with with the pandemic and, you know, that's how we sort of had that level of assurance. Um, because people always need a place to live, right? Businesses don't always necessarily need a place to locate, but people always need a place to live. So I think our portfolio was about 90% multifamily. And when you talk about you know KPIs metrics, what were we looking for? That's how we were able to mitigate our risk as we expanded because we were much more heavily focused on the multifamily side of, of the equation. In fact, you know, as interest rates continue to go up, it becomes more unaffordable for individuals to be able to buy properties, which means that now they're forced to rent. So oftentimes what's happening in, you know, when, when rates are going up is that, um, there's higher demand for, for rental properties. And, um, you know, that's why it was, it was a great time for us to continue to expand, particularly on the multifamily side of things.
1: That makes sense. And let me ask you in regards to when you're looking at the deal, did you anticipate maybe a relatively okay vacancy rate, but also you have to anticipate cash flow is kind of depleted, mainly because of the moratoriums, because of these other kind of government things that were happening, a lot of pauses on rents, um, you know, housing, they pushed that out, etc. On, on regards to payments. So we saw a lot of that stuff that obviously real estate investors could not control. And that was, you know, give and take we could look at that now you know hindsight and say well, well that was a good or bad situation but the reality was it, it is what it is so when you were looking at the deal did you anticipate that you know in regards to your metrics and as well as regards to like hey we anticipate maybe a thirty percent loss on cash flow because of these government situations
0: yeah I think look you always want to make sure you've got backstops right I mean especially when when people are not are not paying rent and you know what was happening at least here in um in in uh, in Canada, was the landlord and tenant boards were getting very backed up, so it got increasingly more difficult to deal with with tenant issues. So I think it's something that you know you always want to factor in. Um, you know this is why I love multifamily is because if you've got a large building and you've got a couple tenants that are not paying, you know sure it's going to impact your cash flow, but it's not like you've got a single family home where if someone's not paying or or leaves, you've got hundred percent vacancy right so i think we definitely took that into account obviously as interest rates rise cash flow you know depletes a little bit but i think it's just about sort of having that level of scale as well where if you've got some tenants that are not paying you know that you've got a whole bunch of other tenants that are, are going to help you sort of weather that storm and, and you know with us we didn't really have that many non paying um, tenants throughout covid so maybe we got a, a little bit a little bit lucky as well but um i think it's just about you know understanding your occupancy rate and um you know i think in 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 commercial real estate most important metric is number of units so that certainly helped us uh sort of mitigate our our risk as we continue to scale interesting so you found that there was a relationship to number of
1: units and then you could anticipate maybe a a percentage of those individuals that were non-paying but that would offset, obviously, still all the all the units that were paying. So then maybe your cash flow took maybe a small percentage hit, but it wasn't effective and it didn't hit too much the bottom
0: line. Exactly.
1: Okay, that's cool. Did you like anticipate like a three percent or four um, percent non-payment of, of renters or you know units or what 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 did that look like? What was the comfortable kind of margin, if you will?
0: Yeah. So I think you know, it's particularly through COVID, um, obviously we we were always sort of anticipating the worst right like i think you you really want to make sure you're 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 planning for the worst um so you know our our, our typical our typical planned vacancy under normal circumstances um you know probably around 5 6% Throughout covid we were probably at least doubling that but you know again in a building where you've got 30 40 units um you know even 10% vacancy is not not the end of the world at the end of the day. And, and even when you're
1: structuring these deals, did you come in with more cash to offset, you know, potential cash flow depletion and less debt in regards to kind of the, the, the deal as well?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's definitely important is, you know, particularly when you're going through time like that, the amount you're leveraging yourself is obviously key because if you, you got a lot of debt on the books, now interest rates are rising. Now tenants are, are not paying, right? That's when you're getting into a bit of a sticky situation. And and that's where a lot of people run into trouble where, where they've, they've over leveraged, you know, let's say the economy was great. They were, they were over leveraging because there were no issues. Now, all of a sudden we hit a recession. There's a ton of debt on the books, interest rates go up, people stop paying. That's where you can get caught between your legs. So, um, definitely we were definitely putting down a little bit more in terms of, uh, what our loan-to-value was as we were closing these deals. Well, see, that's why I wanted to bring this up because I've seen
1: this time in and time out, definitely 2008, and, you know, I was younger then, but now you're looking at the, kind of the same cycles, if you will, where, you know, interest rates, you lock in something, wow, that's amazing, but you, you take out a, a loan that's, you know, I mean, just ridiculous and, you know, 90% kind of, you know, whatever, and, and that's fine, but the reality is you have to anticipate, well, if you have a vacancy rate of, you know, it drops down to 90%. Well, what does that happen to your cash flow? How does that affect your, you know, all this stuff? And then what if it, your worst case scenario it drops down to 85% or, you know, some individuals yeah. don't pay and, you know, and that's, a, that's the reality of, of circumstance, you know, and, and you know, anticipating kind of creating those those plans of, hey, what's the worst case scenario and can we still provide and create cash flow and keep the business and asset under our books, even with the worst yeah. case scenario. And so I appreciate you kind of explain that, how you came in. It yeah. wasn't just like you went aggressive, you came in very strategically, very effectively in your approach to make sure that, hey, you could weather
0: all the storms, correct? Absolutely, yeah. And again, it's, it's key to ensure that you're not over leveraging yourself, especially when you're, when you're scaling to that extent.
1: What do, in, in regards to that, was there like a comfortable kind of metric when you're looking at, like, let's say, let's take a uh, you know, a 40 unit, okay, something that's worth maybe three million dollars, maybe another yeah, example that you could share, and then kind of debt to income, capital, how much you raise to obviously, you know, allocating towards debt. What would
0: what, what that look like to make sure that, okay, hey, this is a comfortable uh, um, deal structure for sure? So, I think first of all, it depends on how you're financing it, right? So, you know, really, there, there's two main methods either you're going to the bank or you're going private, right? And so if you're going to a bank, um, particularly with commercial real estate, generally they're gonna fund say up to a maximum of about 70% loan to value. Uh, you know, I think a general rule of thumb in, in whether it's a single family home, multifamily, um, I think kind of the sweet spot is you never want to, you never want to be more than about 80% loan to value. In other words, you always want to make sure you're putting at least 20% down in an ideal world. That doesn't mean we didn't have scenarios where we, you know, where, where we were leveraged more to say 85, 90%. But I would say if, if, you know, rule of thumb, I would say you want to be putting down at least generally 20% to ensure that you're not getting caught down the road. So bank on commercial, they're, they're going to require you to put down at least 30, 35% loan to value, um, private is, is a whole nother, a whole nother world because that's, that's not regulated by the banks. And that's just you getting financing from another individual or, or a non-banking institution. Um, so yeah, I put down 65, 70%. And then as far as, okay, how do you make up the difference? You know, there, there's, there's a number of ways, either the, the company puts in, you know, their own equity, um, you go to, you know, you syndicate, with other investors to say, hey, why don't you co-invest alongside us? You put in the 30%. We're going to get the bank financing. You'll be a passive investor. We'll manage everything. Here are the returns we, we're expecting. So you know, and 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 that's the thing. Um, I think a lot of people are maybe not privy to is is how creative you can get when it comes to financing real estate, even if the bank is providing you alone it doesn't mean that you have to be the only individual or company to come up with that 20 or 30%. There's a lot of other ways to supplement that to leverage other people's money to be able to achieve that level of scale down the yeah, road.
1: That makes sense. That makes sense and it's and that's why I appreciate kind of unpacking that and and how you evolved into it. When you were looking here in the United States, we had, you know, valuations of real estate just Sky skyrocket and so yeah, you're getting a pretty good interest rate But maybe you're spending more than you know, you know thirty forty thousand or a hundred thousand over the actual asking price Just to make a bid and get it accepted, right? We saw that uh, Real-time and that was just in the in the residential we didn't see that I mean, we saw that same thing in, in multifamily and that those kind of prices my point is is Were you when you're looking at your deal flow and structuring the deal? Were you gravitating more toward like the value add kind of real estate or, or what, how did you look at that in regards to saying, hey, this, this aligns with our thesis and making sure you're not, you know, uh, spending two times over the asking price and yeah. making sure that you're obviously making some good um, returns on it?
0: Yeah, it's, it's it's a great point and a great question. And that's why I uh, even though I own single family homes myself, I still gravitate more towards, uh, you know, uh, commercial and the reason sort of relates to what you're talking about which is um you know with commercial real estate you can sort of control the 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 valuation right they refer to it as forced appreciation and that comes largely through value value add so our philosophy was entirely we were value add investors So anytime we were looking at a deal, it was, you know, generally speaking, we were buying existing buildings that required predominantly cosmetic, cosmetic upgrades, right? So coming in, renovating, cleaning things up, increasing the rents, it's, it's obviously pretty, pretty standard strategy. So that's, you know, to ensure that we weren't getting caught as um, prices continue to rise, it was okay, is there actually room to increase the net operating income? Right, because in commercial real estate, value is driven by your net operating income, depending on what the capitalization rate is for the area. Single-family homes are all driven by, okay, what did your neighbor sell sell his place for? And that's where you get a lot more caught when you know home prices are sky high. You buy at the peak, and then prices drop, and you can't control the value that you can bring to to the asset. So when you were looking at these deals,
1: and man, that's a really good analysis of it. Were you in, would you put like reserves of about ten fifteen percent of whatever you raised, or even you know lending, to deploy toward a capex, you know, uh, you know, expenditures on the back end? What what was that look like in regards to you know res- reservations for capex specifically?
0: Yeah, so the, we would do this analysis. This analysis would always be done prior to you know, even putting in the offer or or pulling the trigger where we would just look at, okay, how many, you know, how many units, what do we think roughly it's going to cost per unit to bring it to the level that we want? What in turn is that going to allow us to charge? And then based on that, on that lift and net operating income, depending on the cap rate, where do we think the future value is going to be of, of, of the building, right? I mean, it's it's very much a financial engineering exercise. Um, so that was all. That was you know we that's the model we always ran for anything that we ever moved on um, on the commercial side of things.
1: That makes perfect sense. Yeah, because I've seen
0: a lot of like slide
1: decks and syndication and how they how they analyze that at a very micro level on each unit per unit and really being able to say, hey, we're going to you know, anticipate spending you know seventy 000, eighty thousand dollars per unit, which equals. Times 300, 400 units, whatever it is, equals this is how much and so forth. So I appreciate you explaining that. I want to talk a little bit about lending, uh, private lending. Uh, you've obviously loved this. You are very good at doing this. And what kind of, what was that evolution? How did you get involved with it? And uh, let's kind of dive into that a little bit.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely passionate about the private lending. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting because obviously I, I'm a big advocate of, of buying real estate, owning real estate, being a landlord, you know, having rental properties. Um, but I think there's, there's a huge opportunity for individuals that are looking to generate substantial passive income, but maybe don't want the headaches of, of being a landlord, right? I mean, it comes with a whole different level of, of responsibility. So it was interesting when I got into real estate, you know, back in, in 2019 and started scaling this company, um, we were acquiring a lot of properties, uh, by securing private lending financing, and and to be honest, I didn't really know much about it prior to. And what was interesting is that um, you know private lending allows individuals to to very quickly close on a piece of real estate, right? You're not you know banks, especially these days, especially with with how much they've pulled back because of COVID, the amount of red tape is it's through the roof now, right? I mean. In some instances with commercial, it can take you two, three months with a bank now. And that's what we were finding is we, we, we came across great deals, but a lot of the times they needed quick closings. So it, 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 it unpacked this entire world of, of private lending where we would go to a private lender. And in some instances we could close on commercial deal, um, within two weeks. Yeah. So very, very interesting, uh, you know, and I think there's, there's. So there, there's the private lending side in terms of acquiring and needing financing, but then there's a flip side of individuals that are looking to generate passive income, but don't want to be a landlord where they can actually provide private mortgages to individuals or companies that are looking to to um, to acquire. And sort of what I've said and what I truly believe is is I think you know doing secured private lending against real estate is one of the most um, lucrative ways to generate passive income relative to the level of security that it offers, right? Because by providing a private mortgage, you, you have the asset. So in the event that, that someone cannot make payments, um, although this is not the objective, you know, you can either push them, you can either foreclose or push them into power of sale. So to be able to generate 12, 14, 15% interest a year, while having the security of an asset, um, you know, certainly I don't think the stock market is is going to give you that return with that level of security. So, very, very compelling uh, offering.
1: Look, the way it's structured, correct me if I'm wrong, is it is a very cash flow situation. So the investor or the private lender, you have to have a lot of cash to be able to say, hey, here's fifty thousand, a hundred thousand, five hundred thousand, whatever it is, for that property, and then we structure that out on a loan term. Uh, and that could be basically through you and, and the individual negotiated, and as well as the interest rates term, and then yep. how much you guys ante- anticipate, expect, and um, it, correct me if i are wrong, but that, that's kind of the structure of it. Now, when you're looking at underwriting that individual, yeah, do you underwrite that individual for their real estate portfolio, or do you really underwrite the, 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 the actual asset, that real estate that you're actually lending the money on, uh, or is it kind of both?
0: Yeah it's, it's definitely both. And, and, um, you know, I talk a lot about this in, in the course I developed where you want to take both into into account, right? So obviously, you want to know who you're lending to, right? I mean, no matter how good the deal is, you don't want to lend to just you want to you want to do a background check, right? You don't want to be lending to someone who who is, is fraudulent or, or anything of that nature, you know, you want to make sure they're in they're in good financial standing, like basically, you are you are requesting a a personal statement of affairs of the individual that you're lending to, which gives their entire financial breakdown. So you obviously want to take that into account, um, especially in the event that maybe things go south. You, you can never have too many assurances, but obviously the deal that you're lending on is equally important. And you know we were talking earlier in the conversation about being over leveraged and and getting caught, uh, you know, between your feet. You want to make sure that you're not. Um, Lending on a property that's overly leveraged as well, because that's when the borrower risks, you know, there's risk of default in that case on on your payments.
1: Let's unpack this a little bit. So when you're underwriting... What are you looking for? And I know it's really dependent upon what vertical you're in, right? I definitely yeah. understand that's very contextual. But let's kind of take a 30,000 foot view in regards to like what you're looking for in regards to that individual that's asking for the, the the lending amount, as well as the asset you're you're actually underwriting. So let's kind of talk about your thesis. What do you gravitate toward? Are you more single family uh, investor? Or are you more of like multifamily as well? Because that's kind of what you your your niche is when you're you know private lending. What niche or what investment thesis do you focus on and what does that underwriting process look like?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, I think private lending on both there's opportunities for both single family home and multifamily from a private lending perspective. I wouldn't necessarily say to someone only do one, but, but don't do the other. And, and, you know, keep in mind, just like you said, you do need some cash to be able to do private lending. For single family homes, you're not going to need as much as commercial, right? Just inherently the pressure commercial is going to be much higher. Um, you know, I would say generally speaking, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, I would I would sort of tell people do not lend more than 80% of the loan to value, right? You always want to make sure that the individual or the entity has at least 20% equity in the property again because in a situation where if they're if they're defaulting and you need to sell the property you want to make sure depending on on where prices are that you can get your money out right it's all about how can I ensure that I can get my money out in a worst case scenario so loan to value equity that's a huge factor obviously what is the cash flow the monthly cash flow of the property producing right you got to make sure that 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 the the borrower can service your interest payments on, on a monthly basis. And then one thing that's very important too is the exit as a private lender. How am I going to get my money out in a year, right? I'm not, I'm, I'm not a bank where I'm going to finance you for the next 25, 25 years. So how am I going to get my money out? Is the individual going to pay me out of, out of his or her her own pocket? Are they going to find another private lender? Are they going to go to the bank and refinance? So you you at least want to have some sort of an idea of how you're going to be able to get your money back um, when the term expires. And you mentioned
1: one year. Do you, you know, extend that out to four or five years? Because like you mentioned at the end of the day, I mean, if you're having a seven, eight or even above, uh, you know, prime mark uh, annual rate. Then you're actually doing pretty good in regards to passive income. So if it's like you know averaging eight, nine percent or something like that, and maybe they can't go to the bank because they need to close in a short period of time, and they're fine yeah. with paying extra interest rate, yeah. and say, hey, well, I can, I can, you know, leverage this out for five, seven, ten, maybe eleven years. You get compensated as the investor, and like you mentioned, it's kind of hands-off approach as long as your underwriting is is dialed in and your investment thesis and so forth. But uh, do you do you as a Specifically, private lender. Do you like to stick with a one, you know, twelve month kind of term, or do you like right. to extend that out? What is your kind of comfortable?
0: So, I, I think it, you know, it depends on the individual and the lender, right? Some some people don't want to be hassled with having to go through the process again of relending, and if the borrower wants to extend, then a lot of people will say, great, you know what? If just let's just let it continue to ride. Um, If it were me personally, you know, one of the other great things about private lending is that aside from the interest, uh, lenders are charging upfront lending fees as part of closing a deal. So generally when you, when, when you're lending to someone on closing, um, you can charge rule of thumb, I would say, you know, around two or 3% of the value of the loan that you're offering. So. Let's just use round numbers. Let's say you're, you're, you're giving someone a million dollar private mortgage. When you close, you're gonna get a check upfront immediately for at least $20,000. That doesn't include the monthly interest payments that you're getting on the loan. So my point is that for me, my objective would be how many times can I recycle my money? Let's say in the shortest period of time, because every time you, you, you orchestrate a new private lend, you're also charging that upfront lending fee, right? And the other, the other potential disadvantage of continuing to extend um, is that it may not necessarily give the opportunity to increase your, your interest rate as well, depending on where things are at. Interest rates with private lend generally um, will go up or down depending on bank rates. So right now, because as interest rates with the bank continue to rise, on a first private mortgage, at least here in Canada, um, you know, you can charge easily 10, 11, 12% for a first mortgage, not including your lending fee. So now, if you're adding another 2% onto that, you're talking about banking 12 to 14% total for the year, which is pretty good.
1: Okay. I am so glad you explained that in regards to like some red flags. The reason why you don't want to extend this out to two or three or four years, because like you mentioned, the interest rate right now we're seeing like you just said increasing and you want to kind of adjust the term according to whatever the interest rate so if it goes up to eight percent you know the bank rate then obviously you don't want to have an eight percent you want to maybe you know add another two or three percent on top of it with your with your individual and have that conversation that dialogue which i definitely understand Um, when you're looking at these conversations with these individuals um, the people that are looking to deploy that capital toward it and, yeah. and you're, you're having that conversation. What are some red flags or green flags or things you should be aware of when uh, you're, you're having a conversation, you're having the dialogue, but also like just the, the, the deal negotiation, making sure that everything's dialed in. Uh, maybe certain things that you've done before that were like, oh, I learned from that. And and obviously adjust next time and optimize next time when you deploy capital in, in the private lending space.
0: Hmm yeah again i think it's it's a lot of what it comes down to is risk mitigation right as a private lender how do i ensure that i am i am mitigating my risk um in the best possible manner and i think really we 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 sort of touched on it but i think it comes down to two things obvious obviously number one who are you lending to you know what is their what is their history know what's their personal net worth their assets their capacity to service the loan um and then i think obviously equally as much the asset that you're lending against so just for an example to get a little bit more granular i would say you always want to make sure that you're getting an appraisal on the property that you're lending against right because again you want to make sure that that the loan to value um, the pro- what the property's worth relative to how much you're lending you want to make sure that that's in line so that they they're, the borrower is not overextending themselves so that if the property needs to be liquidated you have assurances that there's a healthy buffer there of at least 20 25 percent you know you're going to be able to get your money back as a as a as a lender so i think it's 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 um uh it's not really that subjective, like it's, it's, there, there's a couple key criteria that you want to look at to say, okay, does this deal make sense? Is it, is it a good deal to lend on? And, um, you know, you, you can very quickly sort of grow a private lending business easily, where you're just constantly, you know, loaning out, recycling your funds, collecting lending fees, collecting interest, um, you know, it can, it can scale pretty quickly. Well, let's kind of, unpack that
1: scalability
0: a little bit. What does
1: that look like? What are certain strategies that you're looking at in regards to your own private lending business to help scale that? So for some individuals, a lot of our audience, you know, they run a pretty decent-sized business. They're taking dividends from their company or a salary or whatever it is, and they've got some other wealth kind of strategies in regards to secondaries or alternative investing or private equity or VC or whatever it is, and they're obviously looking at this private lending like you mentioned, the risk reward is pretty good, right? As long as you structure it accordingly. And some of these individuals have some cash. yeah. And so what does that scalability look like? Cause everybody in today's world, they want to scale. What's that strategy? What does that look like? So what are your things are you doing right now uh, to line up that foundation, to be able to obviously scale to that next level?
0: Yeah. And again, I think, I think a lot of it comes down to how much capital are you starting with, right? I mean, the more capital you have, the quicker the quicker you can, you can scale. Um, and so I, I think, you know, generally speaking, it's, I guess the way I would look at it is, okay, of my total portfolio, how much do I want to allocate to something like private lending? And from that point, it's okay, you know, what is the amount I'm working with? And is that enough to lend on one property? Is that enough to lend on two properties? Because again, with with private lending, um, if if you really want to maximize your ROI, it's all about how quickly can you recycle your funds. Because every time you're recycling, as I mentioned, you're collecting a two to three percent lending fee, which is not insignificant. And there's opportunities to to raise your interest rate again, within reason. So, um, I guess the way I would look at it is is you know how much do you have to work with how how much can you recycle your funds and it's also and I talk a lot about this in the course as well being connected to the right individuals and you know really i would say folks like real estate agents obviously mortgage brokers real estate lawyers these are the folks that are interfacing with buyers every single day that may need private financing and i can't tell you how many times i've i've talked to the main realtor i work with recalls me and he says hey you know, I have a client that needs half a million to close on property X, do you know anyone? So it's very important to to build a network of those individuals who can also funnel you deals on a consistent basis, because obviously in terms of scale, without deal flow, it's gonna to be tough to to achieve that scale. So let's take an example here. Let's say
1: someone who's listening to our podcast has a million dollars in cash or sitting on, and they're looking at obviously deploying it in the private lending space. Yeah. do you and you mentioned this do you believe and obviously you want to underwrite the individual as well as the the asset itself and that's that comes yeah. with it so, without saying but do you believe in like deploying quarter of a million in four different deals and structured that way because then you can obviously allocate maybe interest rates on each one and then you get a better uh kind of return and then within the, after 12 months obviously there's some sort of exit and there's some you know you get paid right. compensated not only on the front end but the back end and then you're able to kind of uh, you know, now you compound that money, uh, hopefully, right? And and you're able to then take that and then deploy that out. Now that million turns into maybe, let's say, conservatively, 1.5, right? Right, right? Now all of a sudden 1.5. Now all of a sudden you can do that again, and now you're pushing that out. Is that kind of how the the scalability aspect works?
0: Yeah. So so it depends, and and I guess to dive a little bit further here, um, there's so there's opportunities to deploy capital on a first mortgage, but there's also opportunities to deploy capital on a second mortgage. And so really, you know, when you're talking about $250,000 to be able to find a buyer who, who is looking for a first mortgage that only requires $250,000. You know, especially in this day and age, there's not the, the amount of uh, the volume of real estate out there that's available for a quarter million is, is, you know, it's not abundant necessarily, so it, it's when you talk about um splitting up a million dollars, it's relative to the deals that are available and what capital is required to fund those deals. First mortgage is generally going to require more capital because that's the first that's the first party that a buyer goes to to fund a single family home. let's say they need they're buying a half a million dollar house. But then there's individuals that also need second mortgages for whatever reason. And that's when there's opportunity to deploy smaller amounts because they've already got someone in that first position who's maybe funded the majority of their purchase, but they need some supplemental income. And now what's interesting about providing a second mortgage is because the level of risk is a little bit higher because you're in second position, not first position, you can now charge a higher interest rate. So now instead of charging 14%, I've seen in many instances, um, lenders in second position are charging 15, 16, 17% to reflect the level of risk associated. So it's kind of tough to say, yeah, in a perfect world, divide a million by four. Um, It's also, it will depend on the deals that are coming to you and the capital required to be able to fund those deals. So
1: you, you're you're really looking at these investors. They come to you know different lenders, and maybe this house, uh, maybe I should say multifamily, is worth five million dollars, and they go out and get a lot of different quarter of a million dollar checks from different lenders, and each one can be you know allocate eighty percent of that uh, five million dollars, and then the rest they put twenty percent down and be able to acquire that that multifamily uh, real estate. Is that correct? And then also.
0: The yeah, I, Go yeah. I would say um, uh, syndicating mortgages is not not as common, and I think depending on whether you're in Canada or the U.S., there are some sort of security. Um, I know. I think it was is through the 2008 crash. At least here in Canada, um, they really clamped down on on syndicating. Okay. mortgages that's what i was in, curious in, on okay. in particular so it's not like it's not like you can go get a private mortgage and you've got 25 people that hold that mortgage they like gave that you some money to be able to put it in there yeah I gotcha. the, okay. the securities will be all over you you know i would say maybe and again I'm not, I'm not i'm not a lawyer i'm not a securities lawyer but i would say you know maybe three three four individuals you could probably get away with on on having a, a, a secured first mortgage um but yeah, it, it's more. It's not like syndicating on on real estate investment where you're buying, you're you're pooling to buy a, an asset. You're gonna have fewer individuals when it comes to providing a, a first mortgage. Generally speaking,
1: that makes sense. Yeah. I've seen some real estate individuals like you know fix and flippers that do take a hard money lend to do yeah. CapEx on their, on, their, so they buy something for relatively inexpensive, that's, you know, maybe get a loan on it, whatever, however they structure the deal. And yeah. they come to a hard money lender or a private lender and say, hey, I need, you know, $100,000 to put, you know, X amount of stuff in here. What are your thoughts on that? Because uh, that's not really back on the house itself, but that's yeah. just more of a, a you know, $100,000 for CapEx. What, what, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I mean, when you're getting into the unsecured world you got to be careful right um i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily discourage people from from doing hard money uh i just think in that case you really really got to know who you're lending to underwriter yeah it's really important um again you're gonna make more because because of the lack of of security um but you don't have as much peace of mind as you do when you've got (laughs) You've got the security so um
1: in your opinion
0: i know this is just speculation for your own opinion
1: but do you like to gravitate toward that or is that somewhat entertaining for like the risk reward or would you just mainly focus on your thesis in regards to secured kind of private lending aspect
0: yeah i you know to be honest i think um if i were thinking about this for me personally i would be more inclined to get into unsecured you know if I think when an individual is at a point where they're not as concerned about losing money and, you know, they're looking to, to sort of mix up their, their ROIs, then I think, you know, if you're at that, if, if you're at that certain point with your personal portfolio, I think it's fine to do a little bit of, of unsecured, you know, if, if, if you're kind of trying to get your feet wet, um, you don't have a ton of, of liquid capital to sort of maybe put out there or risk. I would say start off with doing secured lending and then maybe down the road, gravitate towards, towards unsecured. That makes
1: sense. That makes sense. Now let's kind of gravitate toward the exit. You mentioned this earlier. Um, obviously there's different ways of exiting. Are there certain things when you're dealing with, uh, you know, the investor, are there certain things, you know, prior to the exit, you want to make sure that they got lined in maybe having conversations or talks with, you know, four or five months before the actual timeline of the term, you know, um, Is is finished you want to make sure that that individual is having conversations with banks so that you can get your money back so what are certain things maybe in the contract or in the agreement or certain things that you like to see kind of uh, in a good way and you know makes green light definitely you know definitely if it's 12 months you know on the seventh eighth month you're seeing okay some activity, so you know there's gonna be a clean exit to ensure there's a clean exit for yourself and the investor
0: yeah absolutely and I think obviously depending on whether it's a single family home or multifamily, the strategy is going to be a little bit different, right? Um, ultimately, someone can tell you something and you know, whether they delivered it on, on it or not, you never know. And, and that's where that's where the security of, of okay, if someone can't pay you back in a year, um, and you want your money, you, you still have that security of being able to, again, it, you know, not fine, not something you want to sort of have to do, but you've got the security to foreclose or push to power of sale. But I think, you know, obviously understanding the individual, you can, you have the conversation, okay, what are the plans 12 months from now to pay me back? Um, you at least, you know, you you wouldn't want to lend to someone that says, well, you know, I don't know. I'll just, I'll just figure it out then. Right. I mean, that's not, not really an ideal sort of, um, business, uh, relationship. So I think fundamentally, yeah. What are the plans? Number one. Um, and again, I know I've talked about it a lot, but I think it does go back to the loan to value. How much are you lending relative to the value of the property? Because at least let's say in a single family home, um, you know, here in, in, uh, in Canada, the bank will give you 80% loan to value. So. If you're giving someone a private a private uh, uh, mortgage at 80% or less and they've got a, a decent financial profile, at least you know that that there's opportunity for them to go to the bank to attempt to do a, a refinance on the property, right? With multifamily, okay, what are the plans for the building? And you know I would encourage people that are, are looking to lend on on multifamily, value add is, is a great sort of, um, asset class to lend on because you know, if the borrower is doing the work to increase the value of the property, it's going to make it much easier for them to liquidate your, your mortgage at the end of the term. So I think it's just about understanding, you know, what are the plans, the intricacies of the deal, making sure that there is sufficient equity there, um, to allow the borrower to properly be able to refinance you out of, of, of the, the lend. Um, and yeah, just having those, those types of, of conversations. Okay. So you
1: always have an exit strategy, which definitely makes sense. I've talked to a lot of VCs on our platform today, uh, as well. And they always say, whenever they are putting deploying capital towards something, they always have an exit kind of conversation as well and saying, Hey, five to seven years, that's kind of our timeline or whatever that looks like, and making sure that there's some sort of company or individual entity that also acquires that company. So they have that dialogue. So it's really cool that you mentioned that. I'm curious on like worst case scenario, okay? Uh, Term comes up, obviously do you have an agreement in there that says, hey, you know what, we're able to extend this. There's a grace period of three, an extra three months to make sure that there are certain things that are able to take place at the same interest rate, X, Y, Z, whatever. Or like, obviously, hey, you missed, you know, two payments within the last 12 months, maybe three payments, which yeah. isn't good. I'm going to go ahead and foreclose on this, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, the biggest part about this, what I think is, is communication, right? Communicating with your investors, because at the end of the day, you know, you as the investor, you really don't want to, uh, you know, foreclose because the reason why you lend it is because it's it doesn't take much of your energy, right? Exactly,
0: exactly. <laughs> so.
1: You know really it's just uh I'd love to help understand like navigating the worst case scenarios right because not everything going to play out like it yeah. plays out right for whatever reason, so just having that dialogue and having that conversation, how do you navigate that
0: and again I think I think you nailed it it's it's um you know and and i've I've experienced this quite a bit over the last number of years i think if if a lot of individuals just did the most basic level of communication that would that would avoid ninety five percent of of the problems, right? So, um, from the perspective of of a borrower, if you know you're not going to be able to make the payment on time, don't wait till don't wait till the 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 lender, you know, cashes a check and 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 gets the insufficient funds notice from the bank back, and then they come to you and say, what what's going on, right? So, um, you know, I think I think uh, depending on the letter lender, there will be flexibility it's all about communication if a borrower is going to you know miss a payment be late um that's fine but i do think it's about communicating and it's about you know making good on the agreement because at the end of the day especially from the perspective of the borrower look you you don't want to piss off your your lenders right i mean you you want you want to be able to go back to lenders and say Hey, I've got another deal. Can you finance me for another? Like those are very key relationships, especially from the perspective of the borrower. And from the perspective of the lender, people are lending because it's hassle-free, right? You close on the deal. And this is the other thing that I love about private lending. You close on the deal as part of closing, the lawyer gives you post-dated checks for the duration of the term. So literally all you're doing every month as a private lender is you're taking a trip to the bank and you're cashing your check. So the last thing a lender wants is to now have to be bothered with the dynamics of, of, of late payments and this and that. Um, so I think it's just like you said, it's just about expectations, communication, being open, and uh, a lender not feeling like they're maybe being taken advantage of at the end of the day.
1: That makes perfect sense, you know, and it all comes, like you just mentioned, in communication and really having that that relationship with those individuals because you can figure it out as long as it figures out. And like you mentioned, long term, you want to build that relationship. This has been a lot of fun, man, and I want to talk just specifically here because everything relies, what I've discovered is, it's almost like hiring, right? It's like hire fast, you know, um, uh you know, fire fast. Excuse me, hire slow, fire fast. I got that, that quote wrong. My point is, is sometimes you have a lot of conversations, a lot of people asking for money, out of 100, you know, you know, asks, you only maybe deploy capital with two, right? Because they don't, you have a strong underwriting process, right, it's the same kind of concept, a very strong hiring process, so you filter out all the negative stuff, all the negative people that don't fit your culture, don't fit your integrity, don't fit your values, don't fit your kind of, your investment thesis. So I really want to highlight this uh, at the end here uh, of our conversation, mainly because I want to ask, like, what are certain things you see when you're and, and just this is your specific stuff, right? So it's it's actionable. Right. This is what you're noticed. This is what you're kind of gravitating away from. So like, hey, first time investors, right? Or, you know, people that are coming in. Hey, do you have a portfolio already? Maybe not. OK, I'm not going to lend to you. Right. That's a hard no right away because you want someone that has some experience. Uh, maybe underwriting the deal as well. Hey, I look for this kind of range mainly because I'm comfortable with it, as well as I know this industry, I know the the metrics, so forth and so on. Uh, or maybe even like the region. You're you're from Canada, obviously. Do right. you gravitate more toward Canada or, or a specific part of Canada? What are certain things when you're underwriting heavily on these individuals um, that you're looking for, and it's a hard yes or a hard no in regards to you're gonna you know have a continued relationship with them.
0: Yeah, and I think you've, you, you sort of definitely touched on it uh, a little bit. I think really what it comes down to is um, number one, the deal, and number two, obviously the individual. I sort of like to say um, there's no shortage of money out there. There's a shortage of good deals, right? In other words, you find a good deal, you'll get the money. Uh, I think people perceive it the other way. I think they think it's much easier to find the deal and much harder to find the money but I actually think it's reverse. I think there's, there's you find a good deal, the money will come. So I think really it's, it's you know, obviously someone that brings a good deal to the table. Um, and, you know, when I say good, I mean, we've talked ab- about it a little bit, but just in terms of, of the dynamics of the deal and how you're participating as the investor or the lender. Um, and, you know, I, I do think experience obviously does matter. Um, I think it's relative to the deal, though, right? So, for example, someone that's looking to buy a single-family home and rent it out—I mean, to be honest, that's not rocket science, right? Like, I don't think you need an extensive background to be able to operate one single-family home rental property. So, in that case, you know, I'd probably be looking more at the individual as as just them as the person, you know, what they've done throughout their their career you know, just kind of the, the basic things. Now, if someone comes to me and says, okay, I'm looking to close on a 50 unit multifamily building, then I'm probably gonna be a little more specific and say, okay, what's your experience running a 50 unit multifamily building? What's the strategy, like tell me, what's the business plan, right? Tell me the business plan, particularly if I'm investing or coming uh, to you as a, as a private lender. So I think it really does depend on the type of deal that's being brought to the table as well
1: yeah that makes sense building a context around it, if it's a larger obviously you know play a deal then naturally you say okay I'm gonna do a little heavier underwriting and uh, I appreciate you explaining that because I, I think it's it's just so important to do the underwriting effectively I look at it in any industry uh, car insurance you know health insurance all yeah. sorts of, they do a deep underwriting to say hey and then they determine the pricing according to obviously you know the the risk of of that profile and so forth. And they have certain questions and sometimes there are a hundred questions, but sometimes they because you identify your investment thesis because that mitigates your risk on the back end. Having those those tough exits, right? Where you have to foreclose, right? It avoids a lot of that on the back end. So that's why it's like building that kind of, you know, SOP or Yeah procedure or methodology to ensure that your risk on the back end is is
0: relatively low Um, yeah and i think one last point on that is is you know the the underwriting from the perspective of of providing a private first mortgage versus the underwriting on let's say being an equity partner or an investor in a building quite a bit different Mm -hmm. right in that regard um you know private lending's much more cut and dry in terms of what you're looking for and the type of arrangement and how you're going to get your money back. Whereas if you're, you know, you're investing as an equity partner, that's not, you know, now, now you've got skin in the game, so to say, and, and it's, it's a much different arrangement in terms of the exit as well. Mm -hmm. Definitely, definitely,
1: man. This has been a good conversation and unpacking deep level stuff. Uh, really, talking about the private lending. It doesn't. We're not talking much about it. Definitely in this vertical. So I'm glad we're able to have someone like yourself that loves it, that enjoys it. For those that you know listen to this podcast, I want to reach out to you. Want to connect with you. Want to build a relationship with you. Maybe want to get access to some of the content you have out there. Rory,
0: how do they reach out to you, my man? Yeah. So obviously, uh, you can connect with me. Um, on LinkedIn. And then the course is available, uh, rorybloomfield.com. So individuals can go there and they'll be able to connect with me through that uh, as well. And I'll have all all my information is, is on there also.
1: Awesome. and Make it easy, guys. Those links are in the description below, so just click on it and be able to connect with him and engage with him and what he's got going on. And If you want to learn more, obviously, it's all right down there in the description. Rory, big time, I really appreciate you just bringing your incredible knowledge and and your incredible wisdom, definitely in this vertical, talking about it and the love that you have and the value that you're bringing. Um, And Rory, I always love to ask my guests before I let you go fully, you know, if you think about… Your young, your young self. You're still very young, but you think about even younger. Okay,
0: um,
1: what insecurities did you have to overcome to become the successful Roy Bloomfield that you are now?
0: Oh, that's that's a great question. Um, you know, I think um, I think a lot of it just has to do with with fear of of diving in, right? In other words, I, I always say to myself. I wish I would have gotten into real estate 10 years ago. Well, why didn't I get into real estate 10 years ago? Because a lot of it is, is, is um, uh, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, imposter syndrome, right? You, 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 you just, you don't know how to do it. You're afraid to get into it. You don't wanna dive in. Um, so, you know, I, I wish that I was just a little bit more um, willing to dive in head first 10 years ago, 15 years ago than I am today.
1: Well said, man. Well said. So now back then, it's just going out there and doing it and putting the putting the face to it. And so, Roy, I appreciate you being on here big time, man. And guys, that is my friend, Roy Bloomfield. Bloomfield excuse me. And that is Journey with Christian Deavis Podcast. Until next time, be in common if you can.
0: Thanks, Christian.